You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'm speaking with Michael Swanwick. He's the author of Vacuum Flowers, The Griffin's Egg, The Dragons of Babel, and The Iron Dragon's Daughter. Thank you for joining me, Michael. Pleasure to be here. Michael, you've written in nearly every variety and flavor of genres of the fantastic, horror, fantasy, science fiction, all combinations of all three. What is it about the device of the fantastic that leads you to choose this mode of expression? Um, well, it's probably just a, a, a personal a matter of taste, personal matter of taste. Artistically, you can say things in genre that you cannot say uh, in, in straight mimesis. Uh, I had a story once called Foresight, uh, one of my least popular stories, and, that's, and, and hence one of my favorites. And in it, there was a, an event sometime before the story began, and human consciousness was reversed so that you woke up knowing everything that was going to happen from the present instant to the instant you died, but with no idea of what happened one second ago. So you know what's going to happen to you for the rest of your life, but you have no idea who this person in bed with you is. It could be your wife, could be your girlfriend, could be some stranger who just wandered in. Uh, and in a straight mimetic story, the only possible explanation is that everybody is absolutely insane, which is not a very interesting reading. But using, uh, using, using the, the literal quality of science fiction, I was able to explore questions of, of of free will and predetermination, and whether it's possible to have free will in a predetermined universe, uh, which would be, um, again, if, if, you, if you try to do it in a mainstream story, you'd have to have a lot of people lecturing uh, about uh, uh, philosophical questions, whereas with this, I could simply set up the universe, wind it up, let it go, and see where it led. Now, this uh, and this is a really fascinating uh, uh, perception. Let, let's explore this story <laughs> a little bit because um, it seems to me that one of the things that this allows you to do is to um, get at a character in a way that is inconceivable because character, as we know, is always based on who we were building up to who we are. You've just annihilated every bit of characterization that any other author has <laughs> ever had access to. Yes, and and, and a good thing too. Um, uh, findings in psychology are, are 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 very rapidly doing the same thing. We're more and more coming to a model of uh, of uh, the human being is consisting not of a single unified self, but it's a a community of voices that manage to act together in a coherent fashion inside our brains. Um, so that it, it is beginning to look uh, like everything that we've written about what people are is actually not true. And so, uh, uh, so science fiction is a good place to begin putting it all back together and figuring out who we are 
and what we're all about. Tell me about your beginnings. As a reader and a writer, what kind of books that you first read made you interested in reading enough to begin writing? Um, when I was 16, uh, my sister sent home a box of paperbacks from college that she was done with, and one of them was the first volume of The Lord of the Rings. And well, I finished up my homework at 11 o'clock, and I picked up a book to read for the next hour, as was my uh, habit then. And I started reading uh, The Fellowship of the Rings. And I did not sleep that night, and I did not eat breakfast, and I read it as I walked to school. And as the, 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 uh, as the bell for the home, for, uh, for, for the first class began, I finished the last word just in time to doze through the entire day. And uh, I came home, I gave this to my, my mother, she read it, and, and as a kindness, she wrote my sister saying, don't come back unless you send us the next two books. Uh, Tolkien rang me like a bell, and I wanted to write that book or something very much like it. And I tried for a long time. In the course of trying, I read every piece of uh, fantasy that was published, which back in 1966 was not very many. You could master them all within a year if you managed to find them. And I began to write I began to read science fiction because it gave me a fantasy-like kick. And slowly, over the years, uh, my loyalty shifted to science fiction because it was more difficult to write. And now it's, I think my loyalties are shifting more back toward fantasy because I believe I have the tools now to write the kind of large fantasies I, I wanted to write when I was young and, and absolutely incapable of. Now, um, the the fan you've written, uh, you're noted, you know, for a lot of your fabulous science fiction. Let, let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, science fiction is an interesting genre. It's generally set in the future, but mm -hmm. it's always written in the present. Um, true, um, and about the present as well, isn't it? It is. John Clute has a concept he calls the, the true year of uh, science fiction. And he says, uh, oh, Philip K. Dick, his, his true year is 1950. And uh, 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 Isaac Asimov, uh, basically, say 1940. If you look at his spaceports, they're Grand Central Station, really, you know, crossroads of a nation. Uh, it's a very useful tool. Uh, when I was when I wrote my first uh, story set in, a, uh, uh, in an orbital space colony, uh, the first thing I did was I went to a shopping mall, and I walked through the shopping mall taking notes. And I said, okay, well, they're, they're going to have to have a fountain that you throw coins into, and they'll have to have all these, these plants and such. Uh, uh, and, and, and I think it, it gave a, a certain verisimilitude to the, um, to the experience. On the other hand, I wrote a story called uh, The Edge of the World. It's set in the Middle East, and there are three Army brats, three Air Force brats. Uh, they're bored, and they go to the edge of the world to look at, at what it looks like, and they find a set of steps down, and they go down the steps, and they come, and two of them come back up at the end of the story. Um, where I live in, in Philadelphia, 
the, the fall line runs right through the city. Most Philadelphians don't know this, uh, uh, but where I live is on the Piedmont uh, geological region, and then there's a cliff, and then down below there's the Tidewater region. It runs right through my neighborhood, and the first time I was driving through the neighborhood, uh, I was used to following a map, and the map shows the through street, and all of a sudden the street stops, and there's a railing, and there's uh, a set of, of iron and cement steps that go down the cliff, and then the road starts up again. And I'm sitting there in the car, and going, I feel like something very large is laughing at me. <laughs> it's like God had played a practical <laughs> joke on me. So when I went to write that story, I spent a day walking up and down the steps. There's about 20 sets of them along the cliffs, uh, taking notes. And one result of it was that I had 10 times more believable detail than I needed for the story. I could just pick and choose the best. That's a fascinating observation. Uh, now, um, a as a writer, you've kind of been, you know, all over the map in terms of, of where you've, you know, pulled your tropes from and the genres you've, you've written in, um, with the exception that everything has been pretty much firmly set in not this world. What is it about um, these kind of tropes of the fantastic that makes you want to use them? And do you, how do you pick um, the kind of trope you're going to use to apply to the story? Is this an evolutionary, or is it a revolutionary, or do you just feel you're at the, the genre trope supermarket and say, oh, wow. It's an abominable snowman day. I, um, I get bored very easily. And uh, a lot of time the world seems boring to me, and I'm trying to make it more interesting. Uh, I try for the most extreme examples I can find, and then I try to make them convincing. And I actually find this makes the world interesting to me again. It's a long process. Um, I... I started doodling with a story, just started making stuff up, and I wrote this opening to a story about uh, pioneers landing on a new planet. But it wasn't a planet, it was a giant grasshopper. It was a grasshopper the size of a planet. And there's a, a page of, of, of beautiful rhetoric, and then, and then you're down there on the town, you know, among the people on the towns, and, and the adventure begins. and and. To me, the important thing, I, I can't write anything if I don't believe in it. So I had to convince myself in this giant grasshopper as an actual place. I went to a lot of my, uh, my hard science fiction fr writing friends, and I asked for their advice on how to set up the gravitational gradient on a uh, planet-sized grasshopper. And uh, I went to Charles Sheffield, and, for example. And there, and It'd be this like little silence, and he go, and you could see him trying hard not to use the word muffin-headed. He said, "Well, you know, Michael, if it was a, a a a size of a planet, gravitational forces would pull the grasshopper into a sphere." And I said, "Yes, yes, I know this, but I wanted to take a a, a really muffin-headed idea and give it a hard science treatment." He said, oh, well, all right, you, you lay a grid out against it, and then he up and says, you know, the math for this is very difficult, Michael. And I said, yes, 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 I know. So I'm going to go out and buy Mathematica and everything, and, you know, work up my calculus. No, do you really misunderstand? It's very difficult. Why don't you just, like, fudge the whole thing? It's this, this, nobody's going to check. And I said, 
this is terribly disillusioning, uh, Charles. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, uh, that was one of the rare cases where I began a story without knowing how it was going to, to end. And uh, uh, so I, I was able to go further in to the story, uh, making, basing the grasshopper a lot on Pennsylvania, where I come from, a, uh, a state that I know very well. And at some point, I figured out what was going on and why it was a grasshopper. And then I had the ending, and I could, end, I could, I could head toward that and finish the story. This is <laughs> this is a very interesting process. Uh, a, a, as a, a writer who's you know been working in the field for a number of years, we've really seen uh, the culture uh, shift in many ways to grow more like science fiction. We, I mean, yes. the, the development of technology is, is led by science fiction. I wonder if you care to talk about, as a writer, this feedback loop, how that feedback loop informs your writing as a science fiction writer. Um, it's a challenge to stay uh, ahead of that feedback loop. Um, science fiction ideas are ubiquitous. You know, parallel worlds, uh, alternate realities, these are things that used to be uh, obscure science fiction ideas rather than uh, ways that you can use to describe what your, what your visit to your sister-in-law was like last Tuesday. And, and in the science fiction field, we tend to, to feel a little possessive about these things, and, and, and the impulse is to hold on to them tight and say, no, these are our ideas, and, 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 and I'm going to, to write a better story about this. But that's really not what we're here for. It's our, it's our place to come up with, with new ideas, with new concepts. And all of these things are inherited from people like Philip K. Dick and... Um, Robert Heinlein and, and all the rest of these great heroic writers, they invented them. We didn't invent them. We inherited them. And it's our, it's, it's our job to, to take this inherited wealth and add to it rather than to simply sit here clipping idea coupons and living on the interest of our betters. You know, it's interesting to me that when you talk about, you know, uh, the, the history of science fiction, uh, because I think science fiction writers... Uh, are very literary um, in that they understand the history of their literature far better than many writers and readers understand the history of just general literature. Well, science fiction was uh, pretty much a one-generation creation, and most of the people of that generation, uh, uh, people were kids in the 1930s, were very long-lived. So when I came into the field in 1980, almost every important science fiction writer who had ever lived was still alive. Um, probably fewer than 10 important science fiction writers had ever died. So if you went to a convention, uh, Isaac Asimov uh, could ogle your girlfriend and, uh, and deliver a witty uh, 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 limerick uh, about her. And, uh, you sound like you speak from personal experience. Oh, yes, yes. This sort of thing happened all the time. And, and the equivalent in the mainstream would be if, if you could go to a hotel and, and, and not only uh, you know, uh, uh, meet uh, Jonathan Saffer, but also Ernest Hemingway and 
uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne and the Venerable Bede would be sitting there in an armchair somewhere, maundering on, and rather boring, but you put up with him because he was important. We had all of the all of uh, our, our literary history, very briefly, was alive and on the hoof. And it was really kind of wonderful. And uh, it's very sad that they died. We were all kind of expecting them to live forever. And we just like, you know, move over on the couch and we could join in on the conversation. Uh, I think that um, one of the things that has been bruited about, I guess, is that um, science fiction has in some ways been criticized as a, a passing phase. A and, you know, but I think that actually the opposite is, is proving to be true and that genre fiction seems to survive the ravages of time better than um, non-genre fiction because the genre elements remain timeless. Well, well, so do so do the um, so do the best non-genre uh, stories too. I mean, I, Hemingway is not going away, uh, and it, it and it's not a it's not um, it's not a competition. It, it's not one, either or. You can have both. Now, there was a thing that happened in the mainstream. Uh, it was analogous to what happened with with in painting, where painting grew more and more abstract, and in the mainstream. Uh, Fiction, great fiction, became more and more about phrasing and about characterization to the point where uh, an, entertaining, an entertaining plot uh, was looked on as something suspect. And uh, I think partly what happened in there is that for a, a time, science fiction and fantasy were sort of a, a, a backwater where plot could stay alive as a living thing. And if you look now, uh, people like uh, uh, um, Michael Chabon and Jonathan Lethem and oh, uh, 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 Alexi Sherman and a lot of other writers, they've, they've rediscovered plot. They, or rather, they have no, no discomfort with plot whatsoever. Uh, so you get to have the, 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 sim the simple joys of plot wedded to a really well-made story. Uh, the way that we've been enjoying in uh, in the field all the time. And it's just kind of important for us to remember that these do not belong to us either. These are inherited wealth, and they come from all all our predecessor writers, and it's, they're just passing through us. Uh, the fantasy genre itself is a, is a really interesting genre because it seems with each passing year, what comes under the rubric of, of fantasy fiction or literature of the fantastic is more and more, in a sense, a fantasy fiction now is the umbrella under which you can find traditional Tolkien-esque fantasy, science fiction, horror fiction, what's called urban fantasy, and uh, pretty much any other thing that's not mimetic, uh, realistic fiction. Could you talk about being part of this field and watching the umbrella grow over your head? Um, You're part of the, one of the guys who's been widening that umbrella, I think. Uh, it's, a, it's been a good thing. Uh, when, when Tolkien came along, there was no genre fantasy. He, it, was, uh, it was his great uh, uh, artistic and uh, commercial success that created a genre in his wake. And it has been growing and growing and growing. For a long time in fantasy, 
it was so commercially successful that it tended to stifle literary ambition. You could do a derivative fantasy and get uh, and, and 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 get a contract. It was and it it was kind of a bad time for fantasy. I think for about ten years there, and then a lot of uh, really ambitious uh, fantasists have come along. People like uh, like Greer Gilman, uh, really. Um, Boy, her stuff is amazing. It's amazing. It's like it's the myths, the Greek myths. Uh, linguistically dense. Uh, she is, I would say, the most difficult fantasist who's worth reading. <laughs> <laughs> I, I read works far more difficult, but they weren't worth the effort. And, but she repays it many times over. Um, it's an expansive period uh, for fantasy, and now it's an expansive period for fantasy uh, in in terms of in, in literary terms, there's a great deal of ambition going on, and I'm I'm delighted to see it return to this because uh, before genre fantasy, for a fantasy published at all, it had to be it had to be remarkable, and it had to be um, totally different from anything else that came along, and I think that all of the best fantasies are different from everything else. They're not derivative. They're not they don't belong to a school. They're uh, sui generis. They're loners, they're freaks of nature, they're um, wonderful magical things like Mervyn Peake or uh, or uh, E.R. Edison or uh, Hope Murleys. I just wrote um, a short biography of Hope Murleys. Uh, she wrote a book called uh, Lud in the Mist in 1926, an important fantasy novel. Uh, the hero is not your uh, promising young uh, schoolboy. He's a uh, he's the mayor of of the town of Ludd, and he's married, un unhappily married. He has children, and he's pudgy. <laughs> it's everything that fantasy is not. And into his complacent, happy life, suddenly people from fairyland, or creatures from fairyland, begin smuggling fairy fruit into the town, and the results are madness, death, and addiction. A, a, a terrible thing uh, has happened to him. And, and Chanticleer, the, the mayor, has got, he's the one who's the hero, and he's the one who's got to solve everything. It's quite a wonderful book. And uh, she was a woman about whom pretty much nothing was on record. So I started investigating. I found out uh, that she was really good friends with, uh, well, she was, uh, she was a fringe Bloomsbury member. She was a friend of uh, Virginia Woolf. Virginia Woolf saw her as kind of a younger, smarter, more beautiful rival in some senses. Uh, uh -oh. She was really good pals with um, with uh, T.S. Eliot. He's, Eliot stayed at her mom's house on weekends during the war. Uh, she, uh, I started researching. I was in correspondence with people all over the world. It was a great deal of fun. I uh, have a lot of letters from her nephew, Count Robin Ian Evelyn Milne Stuart de Lalonde Murleys. Uh, Run that by us again. Count Robin Ian Evelyn Milne Stuart de Lalonde Murleys. Uh, he is now Prince Mer uh, de Lalonde Murleys. Uh, he asserted his title uh, uh, because something that Prince Charles did annoyed him, so they wanted to. Uh, the king of Yugoslavia had given him the, uh, the title of prince, so he asserted it to prove that anybody could be a prince. There was nothing special about it. Uh, I got the uh, the piece of mail uh, 
informing me of this. And it was the best piece of junk mail I've ever received in my life. And of course, to an American, getting a, a letter from a count is like getting a letter from a talking rabbit. You know, it's a creature that exists only in books. Uh, so uh, uh, we discovered, I, I, I discovered a great deal of interest uh, t uh, about her. Um, she lived for many years of her life within walking distance of J.R.R. Tolkien. And of course, they never met. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the fantasy genre does indeed prove to be a lot more surprising and expansive than, than the typical, I think, perception of it. And, and uh, I'm wondering if you could talk about um, how some of the technological innovations that we've seen in publishing, in printing, in video gaming, in movies, and, and television have played into the way that fantasy fiction is being written and even perceived. I, I the biggest uh, influence was actually um, in gaming, video games, uh, Dungeons and Dragons type games. If you look at Lord of the Rings, which is like the Ur magical text, we think it's full of magic, and then you go, well, you know, how many examples of magic are there? You know, you know like. Uh, um, Gandalf, the magic wizard, what does he do? Well, he sets fire to some pine cones. He sets off some fireworks. Uh, and he defeats the Balrog. But we only know the Balrog is mean because it takes Gandalf to defeat him. There's, there's, there's only a little bit of magic in there. And uh, then people started playing Dungeons and Dragons and such. And it requires a great deal of magic paraphernalia. So if you read a, a fantasy novel now, there are magic teacups, and there are magic corkscrews, and there are magic tea caddies. Uh, there, there's a great deal of magical paraphernalia. Everybody has got magical powers. People can cure, people can fly, people can, can create, uh, can cause uh, 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 hobbits to appear in the, in, in the middle of the men's room, you know. Uh, and I'm making fun of this because it, it, it does sound very silly. Uh, the good writers, the good fantasists who are doing this are doing it very well. Uh, but it's an extraordinary difference. It's basically, magic has been mass-produced, where it, where it used to be very, 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 very rare, even in the best fantasies. Now, your most recent fantasies, I think, are really, really interesting. They're, they're a, a really unusual combination of ingredients. I'm talking about the Iron Dragon's Daughter and the Dragons of Babel. Uh, tell us about creating this wonderful and complicated and very unusual world. I gave up on writing fantasy at one point. I think it was in 1982, the first time I went to Ireland, and we were talking, we were, we were photographing a, a the board felt a sign, said it was a fairy ring. I should mention that. It was, a, it was an earth fort, obviously. We were photographing an earth fort, and this 10-year-old boy comes up, and he says, what are you doing? And he said, well, we're, my wife said, we're photographing the fairy ring. He says, and he looked he's disgusted, and he said, don't tell me you still believe in fairies. And I realized then, everything that I'd seen there, the castles and the stone rings and the crofts, all looked different from how I'd pictured them. And I realized that the British fantasists grew up with these things sometimes literally in their own backyards. And the American fantasists grew up reading the British fantasists' books. And I said, I said then, I can't compete with them on this. I can never be a great fantasist. So I 
focus on science fiction for a time. But then uh, some years later, uh, driving to Pittsburgh with my wife, and we were talking about fantasy, and we were talking about steam locomotives, and I made a joke about the, sti about the Baldwin Steam Dragon Works. And she laughed, and we drove on for another, another mile. I said, write that down for me, would you? Because I recognized there was an idea. And I began playing with that. And of course, the first thing that occurs to you with uh, Dragonworks is, uh, is uh, Dickens. So I, had, I pictured uh, a girl who had been stolen by the fairies and set to work uh, building dragons inside a factory. And from there, I was able to, to build the universe. And it was an American universe. It was one that was all, that was filled with factories and strip malls and bars and all the things I had grown up seeing. Junkyard, uh, uh, car junk lots, and all the things that I had grown up with. And I could use all of these elements. And, and I basically, it's like it, Fairy has been industrialized. And it, uh, uh, and it just grew. And I realized it gave me the ability to create a world that was as, as complex and complicated as our own. And I threw in lots and lots of different fairy creatures, and brownies and kobolds and rusalkas and elves. The, the elves are, are yuppies, basically. They're, they're, they're the ruling class. And, and the result was that you got this, this feel of, of, of this multicultural uh, uh, country of ours with great variety of backgrounds, with people of all sorts just, just getting along together, uh, competing, doing everything that Americans do. And uh, it seemed to me to open all kinds of exciting possibilities. It, it does, and, and that's, uh, these are, are such wonderful novels. And it's a, this is a really interesting perception to take America's backyard and turn it in, into a fantasy. I had, in, in The Iron Dragon's Daughter, there was only one element I was unhappy with, and that was um, I had the social place of African Americans was taken by dwarves because, there sh because you can tell that they're dwarves by just looking at them, you know? It's like skin color. You're short, back of the bus. And, of course, you know, race is so much a part of the American history. If you want to talk about America, you've got to deal with it. Or at least, you know, you've got to have African Americans here, you know? So, uh, but I wasn't happy with it afterwards because it, it defined uh, these people simply in terms of the problem they faced. It did not actually define them in terms of, uh, of their culture, of their positive uh, accomplishments. And thinking about this afterwards, I realized that the problem was that all of these fairy types that we're all familiar with come into our consciousness by way of children's books. And when I was a kid, children's books didn't have African-American supernatural creatures. So in the second book, uh, I had been looking for a solution for this, and I finally found one in the form of, of, of haunts, the, the, the southern uh, uh, kind of ghost spirits. Uh, a friend of mine, Stanley, uh, his, family, he, his family came from the south. And he told me his, his grandmother, he used to go back to South Carolina, his grandmother would tell him all these great stories about swamp haunts. And, uh, and I put them in. And it worked even better as far as I was concerned. Uh, 
they face uh, uh, prejudice and yet they have their own culture. There's a, um, there's a, there are all the positive aspects to that particular percentage, whatever it is, of our population. And uh, they're, 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 again, they're just people, in this case supernatural uh, people, with their, with their own problems but also their own prides and their own lives. So um, probably nobody but I noticed uh, this, but uh, it was important to me. Um, and when you create these worlds, um, they are very different from ours, and yet you need to create characters that your readers living here in 20th century America can relate to. Talk about the challenge of creating characters who are natural-seeming participants of these fantastic worlds you've created, but also allow you to speak to the inhabitants of the 20th century about things we can't really easily talk about otherwise. Um, well, the Iron Dragon's daughter, uh, Jane, who just started out as a Dickensian little girl, uh, one of those cases where uh, God or the nose sphere uh, gives you a present. She was just a great character. I found myself admiring her enormously, not me for writing her, but, but, but the character, because she was very strong. And, and throughout the, the novel, anytime she got knocked down, she just picked herself up again and she tried something else. She was very courageous. She was, she was very positive. And um, her problem is, and the reason why she kept getting knocked down over and over again in the course of the novel is that she doesn't belong in the world that she's in. She has no place whatsoever in this world and she keeps trying to find a place. So it, it isn't until the very end where, to spoil the entire novel for you, uh, she does get back to her own world. It's only then that she can find a place for herself and that she can be freed from the persecution of plot. Um, in the other novel, Dragons of Babel, Will, um, Will Le Fay is, uh, belongs in that world. He's a young man. He's in a, a, a bucolic small town village out in uh, uh, the edges of uh, Brosiland. Um, and one day uh, the war comes over. And the war is never really explained the same way the wars in our world are never really explained. They just come and they're, and they're there and you have to cope with them. And dragons fly over his village. He goes runs up in a hill to, to, to watch them fly over because they're beautiful. They're like war planes. They, they, they are engines of war. The blue angels. Yes, exactly. Beautiful, beautiful. I, I, I love the blue angels. And one of them crashes in the, in, in the forest nearby and the injured dragon crawls into the village and declares itself king and says, you'll either obey me or I'll just set off the jet fuel, just incinerate the, uh, the village. So they have no choice. And because the dragon needs a lieutenant to pass on his orders and because he wants the, the lieutenant to be somebody uh, with no power whatsoever, will is chosen. And from that point on, uh, he's sent off into the world. Uh, he eventually ends up as a, a refugee. He goes off to uh, the Tower of Babel, which is my vision of New York City, actually. And um, his job is to find a place in the world. And what has been, he's, and in the beginning, he suffers enormous injustices. 
and he has a serious uh, and valid complaint against the world. And in fact, if, if, you, if you look at this carefully, you see that really he has given all the justification to become a terrorist. And it is his job to find a reason to spare the world. There is a, a Polish poet, and um, I'm going to get to mangle his name, I'm sure, uh, uh, Zagajewski. And uh, he wrote a poem called uh, uh, Try to Praise the Mutilated World. It has a line, uh, to, uh, the light that wavers and returns. And he's a man writing uh, from a country that has that suffered greatly from the 20th century. You cannot live in Poland and say, and say, this is the best of all possible worlds and things always work out well. And you can't even say the world is a good place if you've had these experiences. But you can say, you can try to praise it, the light that wavers and returns. And, and that's what I was trying to get at. I was trying to, um, to show how uh, even under worst circumstances, you can uh, find a place for yourself, an honest place for yourself, and to, to, to indicate this without telling any lies. It's interesting that, you know, you mentioned that the world is so much, our world, the world we live in, is so much with the world you've created. A lot of that was um, just welled up from the subconscious. Uh, Will is on the train he's, uh, to Babel. He gets a glimpse of Babel in the distance as the train turns a curve, and then somebody turns on a transistor radio, and this beautiful, beautiful music comes on. It's like a, it sounds like the, the music that the stars played on the, the first day of the creation of the world. And he says, what is that? Somebody says, it's Take the A Train by Duke Ellington. And I just went, I have no idea what this is doing in here. All of a sudden, like, what is, why is this here? But it certainly felt right. And that, that bleed over between our worlds, which is never really resolved what the relationship is between the worlds, but there's clearly a strong one, and it just felt right. And I think a lot of it was um, simply I didn't want to have that separation, say, oh, this is happening somewhere else where it doesn't matter and it has no relationship whatsoever to us. No, there's some very strong and close relationship, and everything that happens here does matter. Now, um, tell us, are you, are you working on a third novel set in this world? Um, yes and no. Um, right now I'm working on a, a totally unrelated novel um, about a, a couple of characters I've, I've had in a few stories, uh, Darger and Surplus. They are post-utopian con men. And uh, uh, Darger is a, is, a, is a gray, faceless man, which is useful in his line of business. And uh, Surplus is a genetically modified dog who has full human intelligence and walks on, on his hind legs, but is, still has the, the genome of the noble dog. And uh, this is a time after, our, after the civilization following ours has fallen, uh, and they have no electronica at all. Well, the, the, inter the internet remains you know, deeply buried and all the artificial intelligences and demons are still there wanting to get out. Um, uh, and in their first adventure, they accidentally burned down London. This is sort of their version of, of original sin. At the end of it, they say, well, 
You know, Surplus says, I can't help feeling in part responsible. And, and Darger says, London has burned down before, and it will burn down again. And they set off to, to Moscow to make their fortune. And in the stories, at the end of each story, they set off somewhere and they pop up somewhere else because they're infinitely distractible. And I said, well, if you ever reach Moscow, um, it'll deserve a novel. And when I finished the last novel, I said, oh, okay, maybe it's time that they reach Moscow. I went there and spent a couple of weeks to do research because I'd only been in Moscow four hours in my entire life before then, so I figured I needed two weeks to be able to write about it in depth. And, uh, and that's when I'm now in the final throes of uh, finishing up at the moment. I do think uh, I probably should write a third dragon book, and I have, um, I have some notions, I'm, but I don't have the main character, I don't have the plot, I don't have the central idea. Um, I have a notebook and it is full of pictures. I do collages, I do drawings, and I haven't put one single word in. I'm just putting my mind into that space and I'm trying to, cru trying to catch the, an idea that will justify it. At the same time, it's got to be a better book than the first two because it has to be something that will um, justify the first two and, and, and form a synthesis of them and explain them in a way that they don't explain themselves. So um, I'm sure I can do it, but uh, not immediately. <laughs> I've been speaking with Michael Swanwick. His latest novel is The Dragons of Babel. Thank you for joining me, Michael. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>